Welcome to this week's anime podcast. This week we find ourselves more in the U-Bend of Ghislaine Maxwell's prison toilet. Our long hunt for the ghost of Jeffrey Epstein has finally brought us back to the very cell in which he mysteriously died over a year ago. Will we finally learn what or who killed him? Are there some global, global Illuminati behind all the world's disasters? You'll have to wait until the end of the podcast to find that out. This episode though we will be discussing the nature of the tax system, inflation, welfare, and the existence or not of a magic money tree. Ah, uh, cool. Okay, so oh, God. one last thing. There was a guy in Edinburgh called Jamie McQuilkin. Remember him, James? Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, the first thing he said to me when I said, "Hey, how you doing?" was he goes, "I go, hey, how you doing?" And he goes, "Well, there's pus coming out the head of my penis," and I'm just like okay and he goes well you asked how i was doing <laughs> wow that was that, literally the first thing he said to me you're forgetting that's like an old edinburgh uh introduction oh i forget it's just something we all suffer with though isn't it yeah exactly <laughs> it's the cold it's, it's, the it's cold. what happens is all like see most people you see in edinburgh uh who are tourists they rub greyfires bobby uh the nose with their hand but a true, a true uh, old Riki um, person, they they rub the nose with their cock. So do you have sex with Greyfire's Bobby, and that's like no, that that would be disgusting. <laughs> yeah, you just rub your genitals on the nose of the dog. It's or not pass, it's come. So, a, <laughs> a, so a light molesting of a, of a iron statue is is what you're talking about, rather than the penetrative sex. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Okay, with, with that, I'm just going to like ignore you all now and just actually introduce the podcast. So, um, welcome to this week's anime podcast. With me today, I have James. Hello, how are you doing? Uh, is this normal? I, um, I feel should it the, this discharge is is wrong. So, James, I've got. Um, I'm I'm not going to offer you medical advice based on anything. Um, but I'm obviously sporting my now trademark monster um, bought for me with the lovely George Soros money that we've been getting more recently. Um, did you bring a drink to drink while you're drinking, while you're recording this podcast? Yeah, I actually got my hand in some Krabbies. So That's I'm James. <laughs> I'm James, sponsored by Krabbies for this episode. James has crabs, good. And uh, also on today's podcast, we have Alex. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I have no discharge to speak of. But I, do have, but I do have Hobgoblin Cider. Hobgoblin Cider? Is that a less upmarket Krabby's or a more upmarket Krabby's? Far more upmarket. I, I Far live more? The, I wow. live in the suburbs on a boat. How much more upmarket can you get? So you're sitting on a boat with an upmarket cider. Um, that's yep. pretty uh, pretty anarchist. I'm you. looking down my nose at everybody. Uh, wow. Yeah. Anyway. It's very surprising we have a 45% female audience for this. I, I don't know who these people are. <laughs> I genuinely think it must be. I was going to say our mums, but um, I'm not my mum. So yeah, maybe it's like maybe you guys have got supportive parents in some way. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> my mum's deaf, so she she would find it very difficult to to follow the podcast. Best career decision she ever made was becoming deaf. <laughs> I'm 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 just going to leave this alone and uh, move swiftly on to say that today's podcast we are going to be talking about um, state welfare. The role it plays in a capitalist society and how um, the neoliberal state uses tax cuts and things like this as partial state subsidies and to prop up uh, multi-million pound businesses and while at the same time denigrating benefits to the working classes. So I thought we should start off with a quick discussion about what full employment is versus zero unemployment and why capitalism needs neither. Um, so full employment very quickly is when every job that needs done is filled. Zero unemployment is when um, every member of your society has a job. Those two things aren't quite the same, um, but capitalism ideally 
requires that none of these things happen. So unemployment is a systemic um, feature of capitalism and it needs it to run. So would either of you like to say why or would you like me to go on and say why? I want you to say. Okay, um, James, you've got your hand up, so I'm going to let you say instead. We have similar accents, so uh, I. Oh uh, yeah, you go first, that. and then I'll just I'll pick up uh, after what you say. Okay, cool. So, um, basically, if um, the labour market has full um, employment or zero unemployment, this means that um, the workers have got more bargaining power. Because if there are more jobs than there are workers to fill those jobs, then employers will compete with each other to steal labour away from each other. Um, this means that the workers have got more bargaining power and can command things like a higher salary. If they command the higher salary, um, then this will decrease their profit margins. So full employment is really bad. Zero unemployment is really bad because it can affect, essentially it gives workers more power. If you have a state where you've got loads of um, workers running around spare, so like unemployed, um, then this means that capital have got like a reserve army of labour at the ready. Um, do we all roughly agree with that or do we think I've maybe gone it quite wrong or James, what did you think? Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, as you're saying, it's, a, it's an inherent feature within capitalism. Um, and to the point where like what's been happening for the past 30, 40 years is that in many ways, capitalism has been making sure that it doubles down on its position and its um, its strengths, even at the cost of making itself more wealth. So Google would rather be in a position where it can like force more people to work for less um, for a longer period of time than say have some people work for them, but work less, get paid more, and be more productive. Does that make sense? No, it does. Yeah, that's, that's also not only does it make sense, it's also really grim. Uh, Alex, you got your hand up. Yeah, um, I suppose I come from it from the historical historian's perspective, and in terms of the terms like unemployment um, and kind of concepts of full employment and kind of um, it's it's odd because um, the, like certainly if you go back to the 18th, 19th century, the terms begin to come into use. But I mean, there was almost always squatters. There was almost always paupers, as they were called back in the 17th and 18th centuries. They were seen as a nuisance, but there was also a perception that they had to be cared for certainly from around the 1500s there were in England and Scotland. In Ireland, it was much, much later, but, you know, we won't go on to that. But the thing I find weird is, like, around the 30s, 40s, certainly after World War II, there was a perception that if we can have full employment for a war, why can't we have full employment for peace, you know? And after the war, for the most part, for I don't know how long, certainly, certainly the succeeding decade, there was full employment in Britain. Now, there was a lot of infrastructural projects and whatever, but I don't really know exactly when that was perceived to be a bad thing. Like you're saying that, you know, from from a kind of um, capitalist perspective, that it was a bad thing to have not so much full, even full employment, but certainly everybody employed. You know, I mean, I do mean everybody. So when is it exactly that this happens? Is this a wholly neoliberal thing? Is it a, is it a Thatcher going, we can get rid of the miners, we can get rid of, you know, uh, nationalized industries? And yeah, we might have, I don't know, 9% unemployment or whatever it is, uh, but the GDP will go up, which is actually, I think, what eventually happened. But anyway, so when exactly did that come to uh, popular acceptance, uh, Will? So um, the main, I suppose, like the main dialectic that happened was around about the 1970s. And um, as you kind of like alluded to the uh, Dark Lord herself, Margaret Thatcher, um, she was shown something called the Phillips curve in economics. And the Phillips curve basically says something like, um, if you have high unemployment, um, you will have low inflation. And that's because if you've got high employment, there's lots of surplus capital sloshing around um, the marketplace. Um, having lots of surplus capital sloshing around the external marketplace pushes up the price of goods. 
Um, pushing up the price of goods, obviously, that's just literally what inflation is. Um, two things make people unhappy. Well, loads of things make people unhappy. Um, TikTok makes me unhappy, um, but it also makes Donald Trump unhappy, apparently. Um, I don't know what. Look, there there are countless things. I was going to list things that make me unhappy, but man, that's that is a different podcast. Your haircut, um, yeah, <laughs> my new haircut. It's, Getting your haircut in Liverpool, you fucking unhappy. It'd be a lot easier to do a list of things that make you happy rather than a list of things that make you unhappy. Because then, it's like, I don't want to be here till the heat death of the universe. Yeah, I mean, things that make me happy include chess, and even then, not that much because I lose a lot. Uh, Hegel, I suppose, Dostoevsky, and those are pretty miserable things as well in themselves. So anyway, the neoliberal, the, the neoliberals' criterion of things that would make them unhappy was either inflation or unemployment. Now, inflation is something you can roughly control, um, and you can control it with unemployment. Unemployment is a really great mechanism for the state to use to control inflation, because if price the price of things go up, then that's the government's fault. If people are unemployed, you can say, well, that's an individual choice and therefore like your ire shouldn't be directed towards the government. It should be directed towards the unemployed. So I think the 70s and Thatcher's noticing of the Phillips curve um, or like becoming aware of the Phillips curve was what kind of triggered that change. Um, interestingly, the Phillips curve can't really be used to like generate policy in that way. Like when we try to like control unemployment and inflation, um, using things that we know from the Phillips curve, it just doesn't work. So it seems to only be like natural effects that work. Policy that determines, policy that we create off the back of a Phillips curve um, never pans out. Uh, James. Yeah, so the way that you're both kind of talking about it though, is very much a, a white um, male perspective of it as well though. To say like, oh well, in the seventies, they you know they started to act um, this way. Where you know, if you're black in America, that was your whole role. Uh, you know, after the Jim Crow laws, was effectively to be unemployed. And there is a lesson um, to like working white class people is to you know effectively like, oh, you don't want to end up in their position. Uh, it's you know, it's basically. Like unemployment can often be used as a as a form of um, psychological warfare, and the the new the Green Deal that uh, they did in World War Two, like it was all for white people, it wasn't for any uh, ethnic minorities. And you find the same in the UK with say like you know the large influx of um, um, Indian and Pakistani people that started flowing through and like the rate of their unemployment. And even without that, you're talking about like women in employment as well during this time. So basically they were the microclimate that capitalists were experimenting on before they sort of brought it out to the to the wider society. And it's a, it's a fairly effective way um, to to divide um, the the communities, uh, and even if you go back further, you think about the the, the deserving poor and the undeser undeserving poor that started in the in the Victorian era. Um, so yeah, I think it's um, this idea that it's just like oh yeah, well they they decided to to get rid of it in the seventies is is quite a, a blinkered way to look at it. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with literally all of that. I think Alex's question, or I interpreted Alex's question to me to be something like, when did the narrative around that change? But like, obviously, like this idea that you need a massive reserve of, um, like, you know, um, labour um, is like disproportionately affected, like black, brown, BME communities and women for like for centuries hitherto. Uh, Alex. Yeah, uh, it's just a kind of an additional question there about that, because James brought up something which I hadn't thought about, which is that there is this reserve labor force uh, actually at work, but not in the eyes of the state, which is half the population. And yet from the 70s onwards, if not earlier, you have a much larger percentage of women going into the workforce. Now, in Ireland, it took much longer. I think only like 19% of women 
were in the workforce in the early 80s. Now I think it's closer to 60 something odd percent. Um, to give you a comparison, in, in Afghanistan right now, it's 19%. Uh, so that's what Ireland was like in the early 80s. But, uh, but yeah, so I, my question about that is like, um, I don't know. I don't understand this, uh, and I, 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 it's not that I don't dis I, I disagree with you. It's more that I'm kind of ignorant on, on on these ideas. I don't understand how having more women in the workplace and having more people who traditionally were a reserve workforce in some fashion, and palpably there are now more people in some form of wage slavery, some form of employment, whatever you want to call it. Well, maybe not right now, but before COVID. Um, then there would have been women and the whole aspects, the whole sections of the population. So what is that then? Because that's not, that doesn't fit the, the idea you're talking about. In what way? Like uh, the, which idea you mean? Like well, the... you were saying that, um, that full employment is having basically, um, a reserve, uh, labor supply that you can rely on so that, um, inflation is the right level and so basically an unemployment of a certain number is a good thing um and societies let's say before the 70s and before the 80s you had very large sections of the population who were women not employed you had x amount of men employed let's say it was very high for the for the sake of the argument um and then you have this shift uh in the 70s in america in britain let's just say uh, not so much elsewhere, as James said, because it's pretty much been consistently different elsewhere. And then suddenly they're saying, "Okay, well, we we want to bring all these other these people into employment. We want to make these people unemployed. We want to shift to more of a financial, you know, finance capitalism, a kind of service economy." Um, I I don't know. Maybe I'm kind of just being dense. I don't really understand um, how bringing more people into employment. Uh, uh, which is what bringing women and bringing other people, you, you understand me? Do you get me? No, I totally get you. So like, that's a really good question. So imagine like you're an employer and you've got like 10 vacancies that you need filled and there are 10 people like available to work and like your entire job market, there are 10 people in the world that can do the 10 jobs you need done. And um, they might just say to you, look, you need to pay us more um, or none of us are going to work for you. Or even if just one of them say that, you need to pay that guy his wage or de dependent upon what he asks you because um, he's like necessary for your business to run. Now, if there's 100 people all applying for those same 10 jobs um, and like one person says, I don't want to work for less than £100 an hour, you can tell them to fuck off because you've got another 99 people in the, in the labour market that will do that job. Um, so it's a way of keeping wages down. You might think that the reason women were given um, rights to work in um, the capitalist market or things like this is, is genuinely because of this problem. In the Industrial Revolution, you had um, people like were desperately needed for work um, to help kind of build the, uh, <laughs> the obviously benign and totally amazing British Empire. And uh, especially during the times of the Second World War and the First World War, you needed to have this massive reserve army of labour and um, giving women the right to work. Um, I'm saying this as if it's a good thing. I'm obviously not meaning it's a good thing, um, but that's a way of suppressing wages. And if you keep wages suppressed, um, this slows down the increase of inflation. I don't know if that makes more sense, Alex. It does, no, that makes more sense, yeah. So, bas so basically what you're saying is that unemployment of about 5% uh, or up, or I don't know where exactly it is, around the sweet spot of 5% is good. If there's lots of people in the labor market competing for the same jobs, that's also good because it keeps labor costs down. Exactly. And in turn, you get to maintain um, uh, the price of your goods that you're selling so that you make profit. That's right, that's exactly it. Uh, James. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think what happened over the past 34 years as well though, is that, like neoliberalism effectively was like a steroid shot for capitalism in a lot of way. Um, and say like <clears throat> the, the growth of zero hour contracts um, was a, a good way for one, for the government to say like, look, the, you know, we've got this amount of uh, unemployed people, even though, you know, if you're in a zero hour contract, 
you're, uh, lots of people in a zero-hour contract are effectively unemployed for most of the time, but they don't go in the figures like that. People that are self-employed um, are the same, but they could be doing things that are like you know effectively falling under like the the minimum wage are like well below the poverty line, or if they're like uh, driving for Uber or something like that. Um, so that's a good example of the way that capital has changed over time. It needed more bodies to throw into the machine. And while they were doing that, it's easy to fudge the numbers um, as well. Yeah, I mean, zero hours contracts are just like the worst thing in the world. Like, I, like they're just awful. Um, and like for exactly the reasons you gave, right, it kind of gives the semblance of having like a surplus labor market um and like just they're they're horribly exploitative alex yeah no the question i had there was yeah uh, again it's one of these uh, ignorant uh, people questions so can you explain to me famously uh, said by jeremy irons uh to like the to explain to me like i'm a four-year-old um inflation because it's a word that's thrown around you said it's the price of goods yeah, inflation so, is like the rate at which the cost of goods goes up. Sorry, the price of goods goes up over time. Now you, some of the stuff we were reading and researching for this, they were saying um, they would rather inflation be higher. And when you often hear um, people talking about, oh, inf you know, we don't want to have um, uh, inflation of, uh, you know, uh, runaway inflation. So can you explain to me, if you're a worker, if you're like us, where what's good like what how does it benefit us uh, where does inflation benefit us where does it hurt us and explain from a capitalist perspective the same thing basically where are they what are they optimally looking for so inflation doesn't really benefit you at all if you're on the breadline right so the way inflation is normally calculated is something you called a basket of goods and the basket of goods is just like this economics term and what happens is um, there'll be a survey done as to the cost of certain um, goods that you can buy in a supermarket usually. And um, they include things like bread, nappies, um, some fresh fruit, um, coffee, tea, sugar, that kind of shit. And then they'll do a measure like every quarter and they'll see if that basket of goods has gone up or down in value. Um, the rate at which it goes up in value is called inflation. So if your basket of goods is like 2% more expensive, um, in 2016 than it was in 2015, then over that year, you've got 2% inflation. Um, so if you're a person that is working and you've not had a pay cut, uh, sorry, and you've not had a pay rise of 2% that year, you have effectively consented to a pay cut because your um, purchasing power of your money has gone down, right? So that is really, really bad for you if you're on a minimum wage or you work in a sector that does not routinely offer pay rises. And because like we all live under neoliberalism now, um, almost no one gets a pay rise. Like almost no one gets a pay rise. So even teachers last uh, month, it was announced that we would get a three and a half percent pay rise um, in August. And this sounds really, really great. And actually, like, I don't want to complain too much about it because I recognize that that's a, I'm in a privileged position that most people aren't in. But when you look at when the last time teachers got teachers got a pay rise was, it was like 2010. And 3.5% does not account for the rate of inflation over the past 10 years. Um, so this means even with this 3.5% pay rise, teachers are still consenting to like a decade-long pay cut. Um, so yeah, so like normally inflation is good if you're a capitalist because it means that um, the market is doing sufficiently well because it's and inflation is sometimes a, an expression of confidence and um, consumer purchasing power. Um, sometimes that's caused because there's like a middle class of people who can afford to like shop in Waitrose and bullshit like that. Um, but if you're a person that's producing things and your things are going up in value by about 3%, and you are not having to pay your workers more, then that 3% is going directly into your pocket and not the pocket of your workers. So that's why inflation is desirable for some people and um, the owning classes and definitely undesirable for the purchasing classes, which is people like you and me, uh, James. Yeah, the best way to chart inflation, as Marx famously said, was by looking at the price of a Fredo bar. 
so is the that higher... Marks and Spencer's or Karl Marx? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, the famous uh, Karl Marx and Spencer. <laughs> Karl Marx, <laughs> Karl Marx and Engels and Spencer. Nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I guess like sort of post-ironically, Fredos are a good example of inflation over time. Because, you know, at one point they were like 5p, now they're, what, 25p. And they've gone no, up. Like, are they? By something like that. Yeah. I think the average is that they've gone, uh, they've gone up by like 2p every two years or something. Um, but within that, like, like inflation is very often like not actually linked to like a lot of market forces either and in weird ways because like the price of cocoa has effectively been going up for that whole time but chocolate is roughly been staying the same so in some ways like they they shrink the amount of chocolate that there is is one of their ways of cutting costs um or you know they start using like uh, uh, different additives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Wow, I just checked out. Um, not that I disbelieved you, but yeah, you're right enough. Twenty five p for a Fredo. Like, what is this world coming to, uh, Alex? So, just to maybe to kind of cap this uh, this discussion of um, kind of full employment off. A decision is made at certain point by those in the ownership class, those in political office that are you know paid them all paid off by them um that okay we can we can handle uh quote unquote high unemployment we can um God, james stop sending me stuff <laughs> um but uh yeah sorry we can handle full unemployment that's fine it's better for uh, inflation it's better for the price of our goods we can uh find a way uh through jiggery pokery to basically uh, cut workers' pay, because I believe that, certainly in America, and probably the same in Britain, that there hasn't been a real increase in uh, wages, Not certainly not matched inflation for like 30 years, maybe more. Um, so we can cut people's pay slowly, more and more profits going there. Um, and it, at the same time, as we're going to talk about in a bit, uh, punish those who we are simultaneously making unemployed and want unemployed. So it's kind of like a gaslighting game of of fuck you you're unemployed but please be unemployed secretly you know and we're going to do everything we can to make sure at least five percent or between three to five percent are unemployed is that right yeah that's right so like i suppose like that's the thing i really wanted to talk about today um with you guys was like in moral philosophy we've got this idea that you're only morally blameworthy for things that are within your control so if you decide to like you know stamp on my cat's head um and that was like your choice to do then i would hold you morally responsible for that right i'd, I'd consider you to be blameworthy in some way for stamping my poor cat fulini to death um i wouldn't be that upset by it i really don't like my cat but you know let's imagine i like my cat you stamp him to death and let's imagine i'm sad by this um that would be something i could reasonably hold you to be blameworthy for it does not like make much sense for me to hold you to account for things that are not within your control or for things that are like not in your power to change. For example, if you have like blue eyes and I were to yell at you for having blue eyes, that wouldn't make much sense, right? If you were tall, um, I'm only five foot seven. So if you were like six foot tall um, and I were to kind of blame you for being six foot tall, that wouldn't make much sense. If the system is designed such that there is somewhere between five and ten percent unemployment, and you are one of those somewhere between five and ten percent of people who are unemployed, denigrating you and holding you with like utter contempt seems to be a massive mistake um, from an ethical perspective as well. And I suppose that leads me to the next section, which is something like why do we see um welfare as a form of like punishment and as a means of oppressing and humiliating people who are unemployed when this is a structural feature of our capitalist system james yeah but when you stamp on the cat and then you put it into a box it will neither have been stamped on or is already stamped and you wouldn't know again until you open the box so james you son of a bitch don't schroeder this schrodinger schrodinger's can't me also um did you mock me in the kind of group chat in the chat thing for being six foot two that was me you son of a bitch anyway <laughs> sorry continue please stamp on my cat <laughs> please stamp on my please cat. please stamp on my cat <laughs> <laughs> 
What's up? New podcast name. Please yeah. stamp on my cat. <laughs> Please stamp on my cat. Please stamp on my cat. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, basically what it is, is the reason that, another reason that capitalism is, needs uh, unemployment is so that you can then pay um, the workers at the bottom, instead of actually making their materialist like situations better, you can then just pay them a a psychological wage and say like, look, at least you're not on the doll. At least you're not wasting your life away. Or you know, at least you're not a gypsy on a you know uh, on a caravan site. And uh, you know, like we should be taking their their um, caravans away because they're not working hard enough. Um, it's a good way to produce and create content or speaking points that um make it seem like working your arse off to make someone more money than you can imagine is the natural order of the world yeah i think those are really great points um they're like a way of like i suppose like is your point something like the factionalize the working class and put them against each other oh yeah completely i mean and again that was like um, I mean, Alex would probably be able to expand on this a little bit better, but that was like why racism was invented um, back in the Virginia plantations was effectively the Irish, um, like indebted um, servants and the the black slaves, like were getting too chummy and running off and joining the like the Native Americans too often. So they're like, oh wait, we can just probably like pit them against each other. And there's one thing that the British um, Empire was good at was pitting people against each other. Oh yeah, definitely. Like the Belgians were amazing at it as well, but like the British were really solid at like creating these kind of class divides. Um, I suppose like the thing that prompted me to want to talk to you guys about this was um, I saw an article in the Irish Times or maybe the Irish Independent that said something like welfare claimants in Ireland um, were going to have their benefits removed, their entitlement to benefit state welfare removed if they went on a foreign holiday. So I can imagine like the person that's trying to appease is like a person who works really hard and can't afford to go on a foreign holiday. And they're supposed to like look resentfully at people who don't work um, because they're able to take a foreign holiday. I think one of you guys, I think it was maybe Alex, said that um, the government got such a lot of stick about that policy that they ended up rescinding it and paid the 146 people um, they'd actually attacked with this policy, they'd paid them their benefits back. But just like the fact that this was even, you know, considered as like a legitimate and viable policy just absolutely stunned me. So what is it about um, welfare, you think, that we kind of we want to use it as a means of humiliating a person why do you think why do you think that is because there's a couple of things i wanted to say there go for it yeah uh, so james mentioned uh plantations really good book called the many-headed hydra the revolutionary um atlantic is a really good book can't remember the name of the author it goes into all about kind of indentured irish servants and um uh, kind of african slaves um secondly my dog is mooching at me so if you hear licking that is my dog looking for me to give her something so just ignore the licking or the or the crying or the weeping. That well, the weeping. Great Friars Bobby moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, but I wanted to say something because you're mentioning issues of punishment, and I do think it uh, it links into all of this, which is that for around the 1500s up until the Whig government, which is basically the first modern liberal government in the traditional meaning of the word liberal, rather than the kind of current nomenclature uh government in 1832 the whigs uh passed the first reformation act a ref uh, reforming bill pardon me which basically just let in the upper middle class you know very wealthy kind of industrialist people who were professional class into the voting franchise and they very very much want to do two things remove any um uh, customs uh what's the word customs not customs I can't remember the name of it, but basically tariffs that existed on the time for farming 
uh, and agricultural goods because all the aristocracy made their money off that. They said, fuck that, we're not going to be subsidizing that. So they eventually get rid of that, but that's like a de two decades later. But more so, they're angry at this idea of this welfare culture. At the time, the dole literally was a dole of like oatmeal or a dole, dole of wheat or something like that. Oftentimes, uh, in fact, wholly in, in, in Scotland, but in England too, if you were poor or destitute, you went to your local parish, church, and you, and you got the dole, you got food of some sort. Now, by the early 19th century, sometimes it was money, but mostly it was still food, and that held, helped a lot of people get through bad seasons or bad winters, whatever, you know? So in the 1830s, they go, okay, we need to get rid of this. We need to bring in something else. And they come up with the idea of the workhouses, the people who are unemployed or destitute will come into these locations where they're gonna be segmented, put into kind of black, basically just a, you know prison clothing. Their heads have to be shaved because then they were put lice uh, repellent or whatever on them. Mother, you know, women, adult women in one section, adult men in another, children in one section, again, split along gender. And they're gonna work and at the end of it, this will either discourage them from being poor and destitute, punishing them basically, or the ones who are there be so broken down by the experience that at the very least they'll produce some, you know, something from it, you know? But that's the very roots of it back in the 1830s. And it's not really changed enormously now. It's just there was an agreement uh, by the early 20th century that having actual workhouses were costly. And they said, oh, fuck it. We're just going to re return kind of to what they used to do. Instead of giving out a, a dole of food, they give out a dole of money. But that money and how much it was, what it should represent has has fluctuated as well. Uh, in Ireland, there was a lot more people, um, you know, to be unemployed in, I don't know, the 2000s was not as um, unusual or for that matter, uh, as punished an experience. I think now, I, I certainly under the Fine Gael government, I've, it's very unusual the level of kind of anti um, unemployed fervor. So the thing with the, with the uh, airports, that was shocking for a lot of people. And I think that's why they had to backtrack, you know, Fianna Fáil, you know, re rely on being perceived as popular and Fine Gael don't need to do that. They, they are allowed to be mean spirited cunts because their base are landlords and landlords are like, great, that's perfect. We love that crap. So I think that the punishment thing is, is baked into the very, almost to the very beginning, uh, back in the 1830s of, of what we now perceive to be, uh, an unemployment system of some sort. Um, it's, I think it's there for a lot of reasons that primarily the insane idea that somehow you can, uh, kind of abuse people or traumatize people enough that they will suddenly get a job, which as we already talked about in the last section, we, they don't even want people to have jobs now. So it is simultaneously don't be, you know, be unemployed, but don't be unemployed at the same time. It's fucking gaslighting at the kind of highest order. I think that's really, really well put. Like, I really like how you put that um, at the end, especially James. Um, yeah, I mean, to 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 go back to the the COVID payment thing, there there was a couple of reasons why they backtrack on that, and one of the main ones was that they accidentally, uh, without thinking about it, um, attacked their own base because the way that it's pretty much seen is that if you're unemployed before. COVID, that's somehow a moral failing of your uh, character, where if you just happen to be on, you're working and then you can't work, um, you know, the I think like the legality of the COVID payment is sort of up in the air. So I don't think it's legislated for properly, or if it is, it's very tenuous. Um, and like they had basically the reason that it existed was like, well, you know, you're getting it because your job is potentially or more than likely going to be there at the end of it, or at least we hope so. So we'll give you this money, which, by the way, was like pretty much set at the, the bare minimum that they think they could have got away with for like, you know, mums and uh, that, you know, were like, you know, um, working at an investment bank or something like that. Like, what is the, the minimum that we could pay them? per week and not actually end up losing them as a voter uh, in three or four years time. Um, so that's why it's like, you know, a couple of hundred quid more generous than the the normal uh, 203 um, payment you'd get for being unemployed in Ireland. Um, and so 
they they had never said you know you don't have to they didn't say you have to be looking for work um and they never said that you you couldn't go on holiday um it's just that you know leo and his and his cronies they just cannot help putting the boot into the poor they see them as the the very bottom dregs of society and it's a it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction in the same way that you know we hate them and landlords that it's exactly the same thing for them they can't just go one day or you know uh, one press conference without somehow finding some way to have a pop at someone that's on a benefit. And you know Leo very much takes his his cues from someone like David Cameron because uh, he's he's also said that you know we're the we're the party for the people that get up in the morning, um, which is very telling because yeah they're certainly not the party for like doctors. Or someone that has to work on the night shift, anyway. So, as far as you're concerned, like you know, if you're a paramedic and you've been on the night shift and you've got your 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 curtains closed in the morning and you're just trying to get some kip, you can get fucked, pal. Like we have no interest in making your life better. Uh, now, if you've been out in the town all night and you've taken enough coke to to go into your job at the Bank of Ireland, and then you sit around like masturbating like a monkey and posting on reddit then we will fucking help you out no end finally a job sector worth helping out um masturbating coked up monkey sector alex so i i think james is is right on on the money there i think the thing that's the most hypocritical about the way so the thing that it's most hypocritical about it is from from the beginning from the very development of capitalism in the, in the kind of mid 18th century it's always been about subsidies there's always been subsidies there from bounties on fucking fisheries and fucking the highlands and in scotland to encourage people to move to the coast to fucking landlords in ireland being given you know the corn laws their their their, their uh, agriculture goods were protected you name it this from the very very beginning the wealthies had a fucking easy ride it's been fucking social democracy if not fucking communism for them and it's been fucking grim capitalism for certainly the poor but even at one point majority of the population and it's just so so unbelievably annoying that um the general population don't know that the thing that's finds i find so so annoying is they think a tax cut is is oh a tax cut that's going to benefit me no it's not they're going to fucking end up raising the taxes for you by the way not for them um so there were there's an article that james posted to us and they were saying that and it was a huge government project kind of to bail out kind of companies during the COVID um, pandemic, the currently ongoing COVID pandemic. And they were given fucking loans at 0.6%. Like, who would the fucking get a loan of 0.6% now? It's like one thing after the other. It's just like, it's, it's an easy fucking ride for them, and it always has been. And they've always been subsidized. They've always been supported. There's no amount of failing that Donald Trump can do. Six bankruptcies and fucking destroyed almost destroyed his businesses but fine he can fail upwards it, and it's the same with people like leo radker and the same with michael martin it's just he has to he has some sense to hide it i suppose a bit better but he still doesn't hide it very well it's it's there it's it's this belief that the it's, it's a subsidy for me is not a subsidy um it's not it's, you know it's just it's this uh, thing in the background that oh yeah well that's just the way things are but a same subsidy not even the same subsidy a, a, a fraction of that subsidy in the form of unemployment is somehow a, you're a scrounger and and in and, and britain is obviously manifest in the monarchy and in the aristocracy to some level but it, you know it's across society everywhere and it drives me fucking insane because it's it's there it's obvious but people don't see it and it's it, yeah that's my point that's uh, a really like nice point so like i suppose the thing with subsidies are it's just a transfer of wealth from like the state to private interests so like when you kind of like pay a private company to do something um, that they're going to make a profit from, you are literally just giving them free money and like the means to make a profit where like presumably you could have like used the state money to generate a state provider of that service and like, you know, provided a social good in some way for free or for like cost. Uh, James? Yeah, I mean, I think there's that old adage which basically says that, you know, Everyone in America, no one's poor in America. They're just like temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And that sort of thought process is just so endemic in Western society. You would have said that, you know, 
like 20 years ago anyway because you know i can remember 20 years ago in scotland like <clears throat> there was more of a of a sense of class solidarity or like you know if someone knows an adult it was usually not because of their fault it, you know everyone knew that you know landlords were shitheads and well not everyone but you know the 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 communities that i grew up in all had these senses and i bet you now if i went back to those same places uh and probably even talked to the same people that would all have been eroded it's uh, because it you know the it's been the the narrative that we've been told for so long and on part you know to get us to to this point and so it's a lot of people now especially like in Ireland, because, you know, if you, if you want to have a comfortable life, you effectively, your only option is to be a landlord. You basically think, oh yeah, well, I mean, it's better that I, you know, my landlord um, gets to shaft me and put up the money every year or, you know, not do this, not do that. And the law doesn't back you know, me up, it backs them up because in two, three years, I want to be doing the same thing. I want to be shafting someone else. Um, and so, like that's that's your first problem there. And then on top of that, like m most people are just so economically illiterate, it is unbelievable. Um, where the you know the where people say like, oh, there's no magic money tree, but there is a magic money tree. You can actually just invent as much money as you wish at any point to do anything you with now. Now. You know, and um, but that's not the way it's discussed in any in any narrative that you'll ever get on the news or on you know on the newspapers. No, because that's not the narrative that allows you to like beat the poor with a stick. Um, I suppose like the thing I was going to like come at, come in with like really quickly was just to say that most state benefits in the UK, and I think this is true in Ireland as well, are actually paid to people in work. Um, so I think in like the 2000s or somewhere when Gordon Brown was the chancellor, um, they thought that because wages hadn't risen in um, accordance with inflation, they'd offer people working tax credits. And they thought what would happen is the market would respond by keeping wages as they were, if not increasing them slightly, and the state would supplement your wage. And of course, what actually happened was um, employers cut their wages and workers then had to use the state subsidy um, to, you, you know, like be able to like, buy things like basic necessities. So this was like, again, just a transparent, like this, this was just like the state paying capitalists to allow them to pay their workers less and increase their own profit margins. And it's the exact same with housing benefit. Um, all you're now, doing in, is subsidizing your opinion, Will, did Gordon Brown do that and did he know that was going to happen or was that just misjudged on his part? Um, I don't know. I mean, it may be naive of me to say, but I think he was genuinely well-intentioned. Um, but then again, he's a smart man. Like he is, he is a clever dude. Um, I don't think he's that naive. Um, I don't know if this was maybe Blair's policy and not Brown's. It sounds more like a Blair policy than a Brown policy. Um, an additional question about Brown, was he stupid or was he, I suppose in the same way, a clever dude when the late 90s he did what he did with the Bank of England and with the gold reserves? Yeah, I suppose like, uh, I don't know, like I, I've got a lot, of, I don't have that much sympathy for Gordon Brown, um, but like there were measures he taken at the peak of the financial crisis, like as it hit that did offset, like Britain had started to come out of recession when Labour was voted out. And then because of austerity, um, which Labour weren't against necessarily, but um, they kind of safeguarded some things. Um, but because the Tories went like double cock in for austerity, um, that really fucked the economy for longer. So like, Gordon Brown, I suppose like, it's unpopular to say, and I'll probably regret saying it, um, but like he did mitigate some of the negative effects of the 2008 to 2010 recession or whatever. James? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it is kind of weird that we haven't actually brought up austerity in, in, until right now, because that shows you like the way that the, these, these, the two worlds that are completely incompatible the way that you know it's discussed in the media exist 
And this idea that effectively, I mean, everyone knows what caused the banking crisis or the 2008 crash. I mean, it's more complicated than just saying the subprime mortgages, but it definitely wasn't some fucking going hole that's sitting on the doll. But, you know, he's the guy that paid for it. We're the people that are paying for it. And then, you know, they, they did a little bit of like piss week, um, you know, tinkering around the edges with the banks. And, you know, two, three weeks later, they were just back to their old games doing now they're doing the same things again. Like the fact that we've seen like one of the biggest recessions, like I think in a hundred years. So, you know, it's, it's approaching a depression and the stock market is, you know, just completely delinked from anything that is happening in the corporeal world. It's all just happening as a, some sort of like simulation somewhere else. So like austerity is a perfect example of um, how the narrative of this is just so ridiculous and so stupid, but yet it's so enticing because it's like you're not to blame. Your class is to blame, but you specifically, it's not your fault. It must be the lad down the road, you know, that's a dolly and goes to the pub, you know, when the gyro comes in on the Friday and hangs around with a, you know, a whippet. Um, it's his fault. It's not your fault, though, even though, you you know, because you're working at Tesco's and, like, you don't have enough to pay rent. And so you're out there, like, every month, like, um, you know, get that topped up by by the government. I suppose, like, yeah, that's a, like, a really nice segue into, like, our last section, which I suppose we've been in for a while now anyway. But um, the last thing we were going to talk about was... Um, like the nature of state benefits. So state benefits going to support um, the working classes and people who are unemployed um, are aggressively like spoken about by the media and by like the apparatus of the state. Whereas state benefits in the form of subsidies to private companies and tax breaks are spoken about with like tones of valor, valor and things like this. You know, we talk about, oh, these companies are really great. Um, they're gonna provide these services. We're gonna subsidize them because they're a public good. Um, and all this kind of stuff where subsidizing people who don't have a job is also a public good. We need it as, or capitalism needs it, as we said before, um, because the alternative is worse for them. Um, yeah, so like that's like a nice way to kind of like formalize our last section. Alex, did you have your hand up a second ago? I do, and I do have it up now. Um, I think that the benefit that James mentioned it a second ago, and I think he's right. <laughs> The reason why this is possible is the kind of illiteracy of vast majority of the population. And I would include myself there. I think, like, I, I find a, a lot of this stuff hard to retain in, in my memory. And I think it's a lot of the, with the, the choice of words. Um, same reason, kind of legalese, you know, economies. It, it doesn't, <laughs> like, we, I used to joke when I, when I first watched the, uh, the movie, The Big Short, like, the word tranche. It's just such a fucking insane term to use to describe. But like, yeah, we're just going to take uh, all these shitty dog shit mortgages that are never going to be paid off, uh, wrap them up in a nice little bow, and sell them to I don't know the Chinese or something like that. It's I think it's 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 people are unbelievably detached from the way the world works. Like the amount of times you hear people say "money tree," as James said, or uh, "how are you going to pay for that." Do you even fucking know how things are paid for? You know, it's like someone was saying, oh, you know, we couldn't have Northern Ireland. Like, as things are, we couldn't pay for Northern Ireland. And I was watching a fairly, you know, conservative um, economist talk about it. And he goes, well, we just borrow 4% of our GDP. And he goes, oh, well, we can't be borrowing, you know, percentages of our GDP. And the guy goes, well, we already borrow like 2% of our GDP. So we just need to buy two, borrow 2% more. He goes, oh, we can't be borrowing. Like, we, for every fucking state borrows. Like I mean, there's. I think Japan is at at four hundred percent GDP to debt ratio, and they're like the third or fourth biggest economy in the world. No one's saying Japan's going to fucking collapse tomorrow. It's just people have such a like. It's so far removed from the way the world actually works that this type of shit, this type of oh benefits payment uh, payments are are bankrupting us. No, they're not. <laughs> like why? There is a magic money tree when situations warranted, and there always has been. 
I mean, the I, I was reading about um, the slave trade and to bail out all the slave owners, they took a fucking one of the first giant loans from the Rothschilds. I think it was like twenty five million in eighteen thirty three, which today is is like hundreds and hundreds of billions. You know, there's always been the money. Um, obviously, a decade later, they said there's no money, and they let you know a million and a half Irish people starve to death because then there was no money in quotation marks. So I think it's always been there. That kind of illiteracy, I think the left has not done a very good job of tackling that. And I think the way to tackle it might not be to try and go down that rabbit hole and try and get people to understand these words. I think might be, as James always says, to go go more, um, maybe not kind of, uh, what's the word, uh, rhetorical, but more kind of emotional and hit people with kind of... Um, in their heart more because i think we're never going to get people to understand what a tranche is or what you know and even if i have to ask you what fucking inflation means most people are like yeah 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 you know what i mean i think there we need to as the left as anarchists as socialists all those things you know if we want to combat that ignorance and we combat the way the world works we have to hit people on a more of an emotional level and what used to be kind of like almost a spiritual level back when christianity was believed in i mean an amazing fact was that in the early 20th century people like teddy roosevelt were hand in hand with socialists going after people like hearst for being fucking money grubbers because in their eyes that was like unchristian behavior and at the very least that provided people who might not be hugely educated with a common sense of decency people shouldn't be millionaires they used to say in the early 20th century now it's everyone wants to be a billionaire and again that's because you know, lots of things have gone by the wayside, but the sense that unbelievable hoarded wealth is a bad thing has also gone too. Anyway, that's a random thought for me. I suppose, like, the thing um, about discussing capitalism on its terms is, um, like, in using the language of capitalism, um, you've already conceded so much to their argument um, just by, like, you know, talking about the mechanisms um, of their dynamic that you've that you cannot win that debate. So, like, I'd probably agree with James if, if it is his position that we need to, like, appeal to a more um, visceral or emotional level with people. But I, I think, like, the best way to, like, win this argument is to show people how alternative systems work. And that's kind of really hard to do within a capitalist economy. Um, James, you've got your hand up. Um, yeah, I mean, but you have to remember that in 1920, the price of a Freddo was 5p. So <laughs> like, when you're a millionaire, you could afford a lot more. Um, but no, it's things like that. Like, I can't remember the exact year this was, but this was a, like a real eye opener for me. And it was something like 2009, 2010. And it was that um, the money that the UK government had lost to benefit cheats was... Uh, one million uh, pounds, but the the amount they they had lost to tax evasion was one billion pounds, and that's such a like a higher like an unbelievable like magnitude higher. It's just like those numbers are just difficult for people to get their heads around, and so like that's a good. That's a good factoid if you've got a good sense of what, like, actually how small a million is to, say, a government or, like, a transnational company that, you know, like, they effectively could lose a million um, behind the, you know, the back of the couch where most of us will never come close to making a million in their entire lifetime. So, like, you just need to find, like, little ways where you could you know, like bring that down to the fact of, you know, like, look, for this is how many Freddos you could buy with a million. This is how many Freddos you could buy with one billion. Fully automated luxury Freddos. Um, yeah, like, I think the thing that is worth thinking about as well is like, even when we think about benefit frauds, like these aren't like remarkably wealthy people still. Um, they tend to be committing fraud by accident, like they fill in a form wrong. But even people who are like willfully defrauding the system, they're not like driving around. And um, what was the car we decided was a luxury car? Was it a Toyota Prius? Ferrari. Okay, I thought I thought <laughs> sure. So like they're not driving around in a Ferrari, like eating bags of bags of Fredos. Like they're still like normally living um, lives that are like pretty subsistence based. 
Um, they might have a slightly bigger TV than some people, but like, you know, like that's that's not such a such an enormous extravagance, especially. Well, yeah, because they people. need to watch it more than you know. If you're yeah, sitting exactly. around the house all day, yeah, like, like a have a... of engagement with the world. Um, yeah, they'll uh, they'll get ice cream if they've got too small of a TV, <laughs> and that will just cost the NHS more money over the longer. Well, yeah, exactly. There you go. Um, but like when companies hoard like billions of pounds, which they hide from the tax man, um, that is like a serious amount of money for them, and it's a serious amount of money for us because that money could go to building a hospital, and it could go to like improving the material lives of like exponentially more people than fucking Jeff Bezos or whoever. Um, so yeah, James. I mean, yeah, like a perfect example in like in Irish history that just like it happened like three weeks ago and it's already forgotten about is that the, yeah, like, the Irish government spent all of its time trying to make sure that, you know, we didn't get 13 billion from Apple and then two days later turn around and go, oh, yeah, but if you're getting 350 quid um, a week for, you know, like living through a pandemic and you, you try to go to France to see your granny, then we're going to take that away from you. So wait, Apple's taking money away from a granny? Well, no, the government, as in like, you know, because they were taking the money away from the people that were like trying to go on holiday or not even go on holiday. I mean, how many of them were just like doing something, like going somewhere to see someone or, you know, like something to do? Like how many of them would have been going to, to like funerals in Scotland or like, you know, wherever they're from? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it is grim. Like, it's grim. Um, and, like, it's, again, like, I suppose, like, the point's been made um, that, like, people going abroad aren't necessarily going to, like, fucking Monaco to go on, like, a Casino Royale-type binge um, or things like that. It's, like, trips to Spain are fairly cheap, especially at the moment. Trips to Italy are really cheap, especially at the moment. Um, and if, like, your life consists of, like, being told you're a piece of shit, I may want to go away for a week. Um, if like that was me, it's totally understandable. Uh, Alex? Yeah, I think that um, the, again, it comes back to kind of the people's general literacy, but in Ireland, it also comes back to kind of horrible fear that um, if, um, if these multinationals depart, you know, we're fucked. But if you actually look at the percentage of our economy, the Irish economy, it's based on them. It's about twenty five percent. Now that's not something you want to lose tomorrow. Um, it's it's debatable. I think I remember during the Brexit debates, people, you know, Brexiteers were going, "We could lose half our economy. That's fine as long as we are independent." You know, so I mean, I think it depends on a lot of things. I mean, eighty five percent before the COVID uh, pandemic, eighty five percent of our, our workers were working in Irish owned small and medium sized businesses, not in multinationals. So it depends. I mean, societies can be restructured. You know, right now, um, were we to say, okay, well, if multinationals want to base themselves here, they're going to have to pay more tax. And if they don't, okay, well, they can go, but they're not going to be finding a home anywhere in Europe. That would be a good way of doing it. And they might go to fucking London because of the Brexiteers. But, you know, I think there there are some optimistic things, you know, for people who might be listening to this and, and wanting to be cutting their wrists with there are some positive notes, which is that there is a much greater public awareness uh, since 2008, 2009. Uh, certainly now, I think people are a lot more aware that there is actually a money, magical money tree. Uh, and beyond that, that the wealthy are are kind of the ones who are getting are getting benefits from this. Even like Brexiteers, I was reading something, it wasn't the Telegraph, it was something else. And they were going, you know, they were calling them scroungers. So they were calling them, you know, what they need to be called. I think there is actually a palpable awareness now that it wasn't there 10 years ago of, of the very least that it's unfair, if not that, you know, this is all bullshit that they're, you know, and I do, I am optimistic about that. Um, I'm also been told by uh, my wife that <laughs> there's a lot of baby Marx supporters on TikTok, which I'm, too old now to know what any of the any of those words in that sentence mean but i'm told it's a good thing basically tiktok is a platform where teenagers who are circa the age of 16 um invent ridiculous dances that give me a headache um because they always try and do them in the classroom like while i'm not looking i'm like stop doing those bullshit dances please um but man it's like a really really big thing um, I don't know if you guys know, in the UK at the moment, there's like a subsidy program for like Cafe Nero and bullshit like this. 
and Rishi Sunak, um, our esteemed Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, called the policy eat out to help out, um, which is just like all the kind of cunnilingus jokes um, are like floating through the media so much just now. It's really, really great. Uh, James, I'm going to go to you for a last word. Before we go to James, why is there so much fucking sex references in this? Are you guys not getting your, your end away that you need to be fucking spewing onto this fucking podcast? I think mine might just be um, latent hostility towards my cat. Um, that is like coming out in a very violent sexual way. Uh, <laughs> so what you're saying is that you're feeling violent against pussy. Yes, thank you. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> have, you heard of, have you heard of Jordan Peterson? He should be able to help you with that. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. Before I go on my rabid defense of philosophy, I'm going to go to James for the last word. Um, was it the last word or is it just uh, my last thought as well? <laughs> like a Jerry Springer final thoughts thing. Yeah. Go it, go <laughs> hey, uh, what's the deal with the economy? You ever noticed that? Uh, the economy, you, you, you put it in your tea and it, it falls apart. And you're like, oh no. Like a delicious phrase. Jerry, <laughs> Jerry, 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 Jerry. Um, Jerry. Yeah, if anything that we've learned from this podcast is, uh, you know, in 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 this country, you got to make the Freddos first. Then you get the, when you get the Freddos, you get the power. And when you get the power, that's when you get the Greyfriars Bobby. Beautiful. Do, should we all start singing uh, Push It to the Limit now? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ah, cracking stuff. Okay, well, thank you very much for listening to this week's Anime Podcast. Um, we have been Will, which is me, still not a cop. Um, we have been Alex. Say goodbye, Alex. Goodbye, Alex. I knew you were going to say that, you son of a bitch. And we've also <laughs> been James. Goodbye, cockroaches. There you go, beautiful. Uh, keep listening. Um, share us with your friends, enemies, people you're indifferent to, random celebrities, your neighbour's cat after you've stamped them to death. And Schrodinger, make, if make you sure can... to buy, make Bye, sure guys. to buy surplus uh, Fredo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> buying Fredo's low, sell them high. <laughs> That's the ultimate trick. Become a millionaire with this one weird trick. Yeah, the beautiful clickbait. Or we are now a one hundred percent clickbait podcast. Um, tune in next week. Bye. Golly, this place sure is creepy at night. I warn you, leave Haunted Isle and never return. The Phantom has spoken. Boy, this mystery's getting more mysterious by the minute. Yes, and I'd have gotten away with it too. If it wasn't for these blasted kids and their dogs. That was the sound of us catching ghost Jeffrey Epstein and revealing him to be no hideous spectre, but the janitor from my old secondary school. Apparently he never gave me for clogging up the plumbing repeatedly during my tenure there. In any case, that brings an end to our first season of the Anime Podcast. When we return with our second season, we hope to change up the running of the podcast with a new quest, intro and style. Until then, solidarity. <laughs>